I am Max Folkman, and this is Script Lock, where we talk about storytelling and video games. And I'm Nick Folkman. Today's guests are Sarah Bayless and Mike Laidlaw. Sarah is a principal writer at Larian Studios, where she's currently working on Baldur's Gate 3. And previously, she wrote on Divinity Original Sin and its sequel, Divinity Original Sin 2. Mike is the chief creative officer at Yellow Brick Games, working on an unannounced title. And previously, he was a creative director at Ubisoft, a senior creative director on the Dragon Age franchise, as well as a lead designer, and was the lead writer on Jade Empire. Thank you both for coming on today. Thanks Thank for having you. us. And before I start, I have to remind listeners that anything I say on this podcast does not represent the views of Insomniac Games or Sony Interactive Entertainment. Max, do you need to say that for Riot? Same thing for Riot Games. Cool. Then we'll start with the first question of how did both you break into video games and Sarah, let's go with you first. Well, first of all, just an aside that you can remove, but there's something, Mike, there's something about proximity to you that makes me just feel very like shitposty and want to talk in Steve Roll voice. And, like... <laughs> the greatest of compliments. That's amazing. <laughs> it just like bubbles like hellfire within me. I have to try to contain it. Um, I'm keeping that in. <laughs> <laughs> so breaking into video games. Yeah. Um, I, I I always think these are so interesting because everyone's kind of path in is very different. And I feel like mine was very sideways. So I, I think the short version of it is I was working as an au pair in the Czech Republic. I kind of fled America during the recession um, for a variety of reasons and uh, was working in Czech Republic as an au pair. And I went to a New Year's Eve party and it was like kind of advertised on couchsurfing.com or whatever as like a, a party for expats and like lots of strangers would be there just like from around the city and I was kind of like should I go should I not go I want to make friends I'm not sure anyway I forced myself to just like bite the bullet and go inside and I met a couple guys there who worked at Larian Studios and one of them was like a quest designer and I was just kind of like like you can do that? Like, that's a whole job? Oh my gosh. So I kept in touch with them. And eventually a writing position opened at Larian and I had been writing like, you know, my whole life. But I guess in addition to being an au pair, taking on freelance kind of writing jobs whenever I could. So yeah, they let me know about it and I applied. I didn't get it right away, uh, but they did throw me some freelance work doing some kind of proofreading and very small little bits of work um, on Divinity Dragon Commander. So yeah, I did some work for them then. They decided to give me a try uh, with the actual job and, and do an interview and everything, and I never left. What kind of writing were you doing before then? I was doing like copywriting for websites, a bit of kind of educational work, like doing curriculum design, and I was also working on uh, workbooks for a company that was doing like SAT prep, like writing grammar and usage workbooks. And had you were you looking to like to work as a writer back then, or like what did what did you go to school for? Yeah, uh, so I went to school for English, and I think you know writing has always been my most favorite thing in the world from the time I was a little kid. But I think I had kind of just thought pursuing a career as a writer just seems too far fetched. Like it feels like trying to become a, a I don't know a rock star or an astronaut or something like that. It just seemed like something that. I, didn't seem feasible. So my focus was kind of in education for the first few years after, after college. And I thought that that's kind of where my path would develop. Um, and yeah, so I was, I was surprised and delighted when the opportunity to do creative writing as a profession kind of came into my life. Awesome. And had you been playing games before you started working at Larian too? 
yeah. Um, kind of a lifetime. I, I wouldn't like have considered myself like a hardcore gamer or anything, but I ha- would have always been playing video games, I guess, especially like Nintendo, everything Nintendo. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike, how do you break into games? Well, I certainly didn't flee to Europe due to a recession. That is that is the <laughs> coolest <laughs> origin, right? Like, anyway, um, in my case, the I, I think wanting to be in games had been pretty seared into my head from probably about age seven when I got a copy of Load Runner for the Commodore sixty four and realized you could build your own levels. And I thought, oh, this is cool. And of course, I I was not a good level designer, which really shaped my career, I'm sure. But it was something I very much thought, wow, I'd love to try to figure out how to do this. So, you know, as a kid, I taught myself things like Turbo Pascal, right? Which was like a really early object-oriented programming language. Um, Never really went far with it, but it came in really handy. Because I'd been doing, um, I'd like, I would say out of university or right at the last year of university, I lucked into being able to do reviews um, starting in 2000. Or, yeah, it was about 2000. And um, I kept that up till 2003. But, of course, during 2001, there was the big dot-com crash when everyone decided the internet would never make any money. <laughs> Ironic in retrospect, but it did happen. <laughs> And so at the time I went from, you know, having a salary and being paid to do the reviews to, well, we'll keep sending you the games if you keep sending us text, which of course was unsustainable long term. Uh, so I got a, I got a day job and, uh, it was not, it was not the most satisfying emotionally. So, uh, cause I was doing like call center phone work and I'm like, Oh my God, this is the worst experience I'm having in my life. Um, having done that, I, I eventually hit this point where I was like, I need to do something and just did a big deep dive job search. And I'd been kind of looking for about a month and I saw writer pop up at Bioware and I thought, well, I'm writing professionally and have been for two plus years at this point. Maybe, maybe that's enough to wedge a foot in the door. And it turned out in order to, to start at Bioware at the time, they were asking for sample writing modules done in the Neverwinter Nights engine. So you had to like script them yourself and stuff. So that's where the Turbo Pascal came in handy because the Neverwinter Night scripting is very much a C-based scripting. So at least understanding how function calls worked was pretty critical to my success because I gave myself about three days to crash course the Neverwinter toolset, figure out how to build a space, have characters interact, how dialogue scripting worked. And I sent it in and, and managed to... I guess get far enough to get an interview, and I remember uh, I remember getting the call on December twenty second, uh, saying, "Hey, you've got the job. You can start in February." And then I I quit the next day. Wow, it was wow. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> what did you go to university for? English language and literature. So did that. Did a writing certificate. Um, and if you look at my syllabus, it very much was the. Um, I would like to understand how fiction works syllabus. There was a lot of medieval lit. Uh, there was a deep dive course on Arthurian. There was fantasy and sci-fi courses. Uh, there was one that was a survey course. It was just on the six Dune novels and the way the world wow. building worked. And the, yeah, there, there, was a, there were a couple of professors who were very into sci-fi and fantasy and saw them as real literature. So I kind of lucked in to mm. working with like professors who took that stuff seriously and then also tied it back to like, you know, going back to source literature in terms of like, oh, how has all fantasy been, you know, affected by, you know, Fairy Queen and the Arthurian myths and, and so on and so forth. 
I would totally take a course, go back and take a college course on like analyzing the Worm God Dune mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was amazing. It was also the professor. I remember somewhat famously, without bothering to explain it in any detail, just tossed off one day. I'm probably the only person you're ever going to meet who's been excommunicated. <laughs> <laughs> what was the What was the story there? No one ever had the courage to ask him, including me. <laughs> so I don't know. Was that like a day one announcement or did that nope. come up? No, it just middle? came up casually. But of course, we're talking about Dune. So there's a lot of, you know, religious, the Bene Gesserit being kind of a quasi mystical order and stuff. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Lady Jessica essentially being kind of halfways cast out because she dared to have a son. And he was like, oh, speaking of. And okay. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Man, these are so much better than the courses I took in college. I, I need to go redo this. <laughs> what did you guys study? Studies in cinema and media culture mm, at the University cool, of Minnesota. The closest thing to the film degree they had, and they sold to us as it doesn't. It can beat anything. You can take it and do whatever you want with it, mm. which was an insane thing to say to us. But we <laughs> did get to take. I'd like more guidance than that, please. Yeah, um, but Mike, before you got at Bioware, like back then, you're going through college. Did you want to be a game writer, or what role in game development were you looking to take? I, I, you know, I don't remember having clarity and going absolutely writing for games, but I wanted to get in somehow. And I had a real fascination with, um, I guess, fantasy, sci-fi and modern kind of thriller kind of literature at the time. So uh, it seemed like a good fit. But honestly, the the journalism route and, you know, of course, you can throw quotes on there because I don't think my stuff was particularly journalistic, but doing reviews, doing that kind of stuff seemed like a logical flow. And I thought, well, maybe there's some balance between fiction and then just the discipline of like writing essay after essay and stuff uh, seemed like that could be very useful to, to develop as kind of a, you know, if you think of um, writing to a deadline being as a, a set of muscles you build up over time as you know, the muse is not always with us. So uh, I, I, I think I was, leaning that way but I, I wouldn't say i had the clarity of vision like like sarah talking about like i really loved writing i think for me it was more like this would be this is a great way to think about games sort of holistically uh and something that that i thought would be really useful regardless of however i could break in just the experience of having played a, a huge variety of genres it was also i landed the console writing role and i was not a console player at the time so it actually opened up a significantly larger spread of games to the ones I'd grown up on. Cause I was a PC or Commodore 64 or, um, you know, kind of the more mouse and keyboard style player up till that point. Yeah. And this is a kind of a, more of a my question, but, uh, I realized that when I was doing the questions that I'd be remiss to mention this of all the games that have gotten mentioned on this podcast over the years as ones that people admired, pretty sure that dragon age is the one that gets praised the most. So I just wanted to ask you, why do you think storytelling has struck such a chord with people, especially people in game development? Well, I think, um, you know, I think it, uh, I think it, oh, wow, it's a tough one, right? Because it's like, how do you answer that without sounding braggadocious? Uh, <laughs> braggadoche, Mike. Braggadoche, okay. So, and, and you know, I, I, so first off, I think it, it is, uh, and all credit to Dave Gator for this, it is a, a world that is a really richly realized world that I think in a lot of ways captured the, 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 the tone of the time insofar as you have the George R. R. Martin novels landing with like these complex politics, 
uh, and you know, intricate character kind of combinations uh, in a fantasy or a fantasy adjacent setting. And I think that Dragon Age landed um, almost perfectly in the midpoint between the books, kind of high popularity, but then, of course, the, the rate of publishing dropped off. But the show hadn't yet started. So it sort of landed in this perfect spot where I think a lot of people were primed for a world like that to come into existence without having sort of a, another dose of it. Or now we have Wheel of Time coming into play with Amazon and so on. So I think that the world itself really resonates. And I think that as creators, we all respect. And I mean, for me, I, I, for instance, part of the things I was really excited about joining Ubisoft to see was their process for building these historical things. Like what sort of research did they do? Like what kind of deep dives did they do to be able to sort of render Paris or London or whatever in the level of intricacy they did? And they actually, they, they invest a significant amount of time and effort into it. But I think building a world that resonates, that has rich fantasy, that has rich history will stick with people's minds and then putting really deep, interesting characters, which again, again, that's not me. That's the writing team. Being able to make your Lilianas, your Stens, uh, the Canary culture, all those things resonate in a way that, that leaves um, this sensation of being in a place with people, even though it's still like a fundamentally single-player experience. And I think that those two things, coupled with maybe just, especially Origins, I think really sticks with people in part because it landed on that like really old school, wow, this feels like playing an Infinity Engine game again. And for a lot of us, those maybe were formative based on our age. Certainly my age, that was a big deal. So I think those three things, depending on if you're in the sweet spot of fantasy world, plus I love rich characters, maybe some degree of inclusivity. And on top of that, this also feels like this this game that I've been missing. Uh, I think it Origins in particular landed and kind of made a, a particularly strong debut, which, you know, it's funny. Over the course of development, there was a lot of uncertainty as to whether it would stick, but Origins really, really stuck the landing. Um, two was a tough one, though, <laughs> comparatively. It was a very short and aggressive development timeline. That's a great answer and not braggadocious at all. Hmm. <laughs> Cool. Great. Good. Mission accomplished then. Because it, it really, it's not me. It's a team, right? It's yeah. a team effort. And, and I think a lot of the credit to the writers, cinematics team, the, the world development crew, like both level and level art and design, amazing work on, on all fronts. Yeah, totally. And like speaking of a team effort, like the creative director roles and the, just the writer roles are some of the most important storytelling roles in game development. So I wanted to talk to you both about like what makes a good creative director and a good writer or what you're looking for in both. And it's like, Sarah, like, what do you look for or hope to see in a creative director? Mm. Yeah, I think when it comes to creative direction, it's nice to have, I, I mean, everything I've, I, my, my entire experience of creative direction is with Sven, who's the creative director of Larian. And I just really think he's wonderful. And I love working under his direction and, and something I love about his kind of style is that he will encourage a democracy of ideas for a lot of aspects of the game. Like all the time, he'll, he'll kind of elicit people to turn on their creative engines and see what comes out, like not just from writers and not just from designers, but from, you know, a, a wider field. So then once the kind of collective creative energy has been, um, invited, I guess, there's really strong decision making. So you get the kind of 
blue ocean joy of getting to be creative, and then the trust that a creative director whose vision you trust um, is going to make a decision and get everyone in line to, to enact it. So it's that kind of combination, I guess, between democracy and strong top-down decisions. And, and I guess as well, having the trust in your team, um, just knowing that the people you're working with and the team that you've put together are people that can execute your vision, can, can take the critique when it's needed, push back when it's needed as well. And I think that's a very comfortable working environment for me. Do you agree, Mike, or is there anything else that you see? Oh, everything Sarah said is exactly correct. And I've, I've seen Sam work and it's, it's really admirable the way he, and I think it is that perfect balance of, I will listen to all the opinions and then set a course. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's really key because there are multiple, uh, advocates, I guess, you know, like art thinks X would be great, but, uh, story needs Y and, and someone has to be able to sort of steer through that particular set of requirements and, and demonstrate empathy. And I think the only thing I would add for me is that when I've seen creative direction done well, is that it comes with a proactive sharing of not just the decision, but the process by which it was made. Uh, I think the best kind of creative flow says, I have I have asked this, I've listened for this. These are the things that I have taken into consideration and this is my decision. However, if there was something that was missed, tell me now because you know the data set I was working from. If you just throw out a solution, it seems as if you've given it no consideration and I think it's to some degree disrespectful and I've been a little guilty of that in the past. Like, here, I'll design it. Like That to me doesn't get the best results. Instead, throwing out a what you think is the right call based on X data allows people to go, wait a minute, what about online? Or what about, you know, um, uh, frame rate considerations? If we do that, it's going to tank that one area or the memory is going to explode or, you know, whatever of the thousand rotating knives that make up game design will cut you because you missed something. So I think walking people through not just the call, but also the purpose and the the process of the call can be a great way to build trust with the team so that they also feel more welcome to raise their hands and say, Hey, there's a problem because this wasn't, I don't think this was taken into consideration. Um, but yeah, so everything Sarah said, and then I would just add that extra bit of, um, it almost when you do it feels like over communication, but I've never had anyone complain. Mm, that's interesting. Cause people can kind of see how you've come to the, a particular conclusion and if there's an issue with one of the premises that the conclusion is based on, troubleshoot that. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And 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 being humble and willing enough to go, oh, okay, hold on, everyone, that's new. Let's revisit. Yeah, <laughs> as yeah. opposed to piling through, regardless. Yeah. So you so you'd rather over communicate than under communicate. I think it's critical uh, because the more you can share both the why and the how you came to decisions, the more the team, I think, becomes empowered to understand the things that are being decided upon. And the less often you have to make those calls, because if you say, well, the reason we're not pursuing X, I didn't just say no, but the reason we're not pursuing X is because it fundamentally changes or undercuts this core pillar of the game. And let me explain to you how that tends to much more efficiently eliminate further kind of variations because i think we all as developers hold on to a couple things we're like oh but this would be so cool but if someone articulates very clearly why yes it would be cool but it's not cool for this game and here's why i i'm more able to let go of it and so ideas that are are 
by the creative vision deemed to be a bad fit don't get sort of held onto and clung to it's not just like oh he's just being stubborn instead it becomes oh okay all right i get it there's a reason i understand now that seems like a good solve for i know we've heard of situations like this happening but I'm, and i you probably have been in these situations too where directors will like they see a movie over the weekend and suddenly they want to pivot based on something they just saw or Elden Ring came out. What well, if you made Elden Ring, you guys? <laughs> I think I think that's, you know, and it's the creative director that's usually the most guilty of that behavior. So policing that in yourself is one of the key advantages. Maybe to kind of add to this, something that I thought of uh, while we were talking is I really... Um, Again, you know, I can say creative direction broadly, but I guess I'm really just referring to Sven, so <laughs> there is good being too pointed. Um, Sven has a very kind of game first and player first mentality. So it feels like when a decision is made and there could be several views about whether that's what we want to do or not, I have this kind of trust that like whatever decision is going to be taken is going to be what's best for the game and the player. And so there's a real kind of ease of just like, I can, I can, I can let go of some things because I know that at the end of the day, the decision is going to be for the good of this thing that we're all trying to make together. There's not, um, yeah, I don't know, too many personality factors or external pressures that would make it feel like a political decision. Like I've never felt like that. I've, I've always felt like the game is the most important thing. And that's a very kind of relaxing thing to go to sleep to at night. That, uh, that actually reminds me probably one of the most important lessons I learned from Preston Watomniak, who was my counterpart on Mass Effect and, later other projects, but uh, Preston always argued that the creative director's core job is to advocate for the player. So mm. I think that aligns very, very cleanly. And it that's, that's lessons always stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I say used to, I'm sure he still does. I just haven't heard him <laughs> do it recently. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really good point because I think when you're developing something, it's easy to get a little bit caught up in the development itself. Like, okay, well, we're going to finish this thing we started because we've started it. You know, you can get a little bit caught up in a sunk cost thing mm -hmm. if you're trying to finish something that's just not working. And then it really helps to have a creative director come in and be like, all right, guys, like, I don't want to break your heart, but let's zoom out and like, think about the player in this. And is this really going to enhance their experience or not? And if the answer is no, it's got to go. Totally agree. But Sarah, uh, similarly, what do you think makes a good writer like game writer mm, yes um so i'm trying to find the right words for this because i think my opinion on it changes regularly or is an active evolution but i think at the moment the theme of self-trust is coming up for me a lot and how i think about my own writing and writing that i enjoy i think there's an element of writing that i kind of resonate with whether or not it's my genre in particular, my style in particular, that has a kind of vulnerability to it. Like it feels like it's being written um, in close contact with the writer's internal world and that they have access to their internal world and they're able to kind of translate it into a, into a medium. So I think, um, yeah, I, I, I struggle with my when my writing or when other people's writing feels like it's at arm's length, like sometimes I'll go back and read something that I've read and I can, I can see the cogs working underneath it. Like I wrote this because I was trying to imitate X or I wrote this because I was hoping for Y result. And it always kind of like, it doesn't feel good in my body when I read it back again. Whereas when I read something that just kind of came from an honest place of expression, that still resonates for me. It's like it has a little glow about it. 
Um, and I also think that if you've got kind of self-trust as a writer, you have a very secure base from which you can like receive critique and give critique, uh, which makes the whole experience a lot better. So yeah, I think, I think that's something that I'm very interested in, in right now in writing. So uh, the way you foster that self-trust, is it through not doing the kind of like basically imitating the other writing that you were talking about before and do something from more internal or something else that you do? I think so. I think like sometimes I can see in my writing where I've tried to get a cheap laugh because I wanted whoever was going to be reviewing it to like chuckle. Like I, I could, I could kind of picture them laughing as they were reviewing my work and I wanted that. And so I would kind of like go for it in a way that was maybe a bit cynical, like maybe a bit like. I'm feeling insecure about how this is going. So I want to secure a win midway in the dialogue. And that's not always bad, but I think for me, I can kind of sense when it's coming from a place of like anxiety or a place of like, I'm really having fun with the dialogue and the humor is coming organically. So it's that, that, that trust in yourself to just be able to kind of write from your instincts and know that like, it's going to be better that way. And then also when you're writing from your instincts, I think it's a lot easier to receive critique on your work because it's from a secure base of like openness, I guess, rather than anxiety and kind of clenching. This is, is it's all a bit um, abstract, I guess, but it makes sense. <laughs> it's a creative process. They're always abstract when you describe them. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. If you're writing from clenching rather than writing from open. <laughs> <laughs> but buyers will understand that. Yeah. 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 I don't like those kegels. <laughs> you got to watch out for that. Mike, what do you look for in, other, in writing or in good writers? Oh, man, like just a lot of words. <laughs> so uh, many words. Yeah, like like more than I need would be ideal. But no, uh, so I think uh, the openness is key in terms of like the, the quality of the work. And I think um, the best writers I've worked with uh, and there I've been honored to have many are – writing to they're they're not writing a message or they're not writing a specific theme they're writing uh, a character that has slowly developed and become a true person in their head and they know how that would react and how that person you know is is responding to stimulus they know what they fundamentally want and what they want in the moment and the dialogue comes out much more natural when those are the cases i think that that is a a surprising gift when you see someone who can know exactly what thing they are writing to. Uh, yeah, I, there's a number of incredible writers in my past, but I would always give props to Patrick Weeks because they had a clear vision for the tone, the feel, the experience they wanted the player to have through a piece of writing, but the characters were never feeling like they were in service to that so much as if that experience were happening how would they honestly react the bioware writing rooms in particular were incredible for each writer owning one or two or three depending on the scope of the project characters and they would go hey what would iron bull say here and patrick would throw out something and they'd they'd usually do the voice uh and you'd have these back and forth and of course we would pass if if someone owned a character's voice we'd pass dialogue and say hey can you just like gut check this and make sure it sounds right for them so kind of knowing the person that is the character um i think leads to kind of the higher level artistic writing um but then I'd, i'd be remiss if i didn't talk a little bit about the fact that you know when i'm looking for someone and I'm absolutely delighted. I'm working with a, a lady named uh, Kate McMullen now who's just joined our team. And she is exactly what I was looking for because she blends a, a good uh, sense of aesthetic, 
uh, quality writing, but also understands the process, the procedure, the technicalities of preparing something to get it ready to go to localization or into the actor's booth, uh, the technical side of branching and conditional checks, like all of those things to me, I think make anyone writing in the games industry just that little bit stronger because they understand that it's going into an engine, literally, but also figuratively, that will process that writing. It'll be chopped up into lines. It will be presented via conditions, possibly out of order. And there's that lack of control because of the player's agency that means your writing won't ever be the perfect thing it needs to be. But by understanding the tools and the and the kind of machinations around the way it will be presented, uh, I think a writer over-delivers and can put together so much better than someone who just writes a single script and then goes, well, good luck. I hope that all works out. I, I like and respond well to writers that kind of jam their arms into the engine and go, allow me <laughs> to work on this as a piece of the game as opposed to a piece of writing in a bubble. If you were hiring a new writer, and so I hear from both of you, would you prefer that they had better writing chops and less understanding of the tools or more tools, knowledge, and like less writing chops? I would definitely go for writing chops. I think the tool is something that um, can be kind of learned more objectively and more easily. Uh, however, if you're a great writer with great writing chops and you have a complete aversion to the medium, which is a technical medium, as Mike was just saying, I think that's going to be a very hard fit as well. Um, so you've got you've to be able to balance both. But personally, I'd, I'd um, lean on the writing chops. I concur. Exactly the answer I would have given. <laughs> Makes sense. I was still curious. Um, and I wanted to backtrack a bit to the earlier question we were talking about over communication. Oftentimes it can be hard to keep up, keep an entire team updated on the current version of a story, especially during the heat of production. So I want to ask both of you what do you think are the best ways to try to mitigate that? Like, is it constantly updating internal wikis, doing regular presentations, sending out emails all the time? Like, what have you found that like, works the best? Do you want to take this one first, Mike? I absolutely can. Uh, for me, it is it's a combination of... I, I rarely find, hey, it's story hour and we're going to review the story again and again and again is, is less effective than working elements of the story and the beats of the story into the larger... I guess the more applicable structures for the rest of the team. Because I think if you sit, let's say someone who's doing level art down and some level artists are very in tune with the story and some are not. But I think that without some sort of applicable stakes for them, it will never quite catch as much as if you're saying, ah, well, I'm reinforcing which part of the story matters to this effort that we're undertaking. So in my case, I, rather than trying to keep people's awareness of the whole story, at any given time. I think I think there's a general high-level overview that's necessary that you have to share. We have that recorded, and anyone who joins our team watches this kind of 45 minutes of me talking, which, you know, I apologize in advance for. But it's still a... It's still like, okay, at a high level, the story is about this, and these are the things that happen. But then for me and and anyone in a, in a writing discipline, I find if you say, okay, so what is the story here while we're talking about this level? What kind of things happen here? Why is this level important and significant? And that way it becomes more digestible just by virtue of being bite-sized and by being practical and of the moment. And I think that um, what I will often do 
And it's been interesting as we've moved to remote work and, and yellow brick was founded like <laughs> uh, month one of the pandemic. So we've been remote from, from, and we're hybrid now, but we, we've been remote for a long time is being able to go, Hey, if you're curious, let me just throw a quick link to the SharePoint or, or confluence or wherever your, your story lives and saying, here it is. If you want to read the details, they're here. But if not, let me give you the summary and why I think this is important to this thing. What kind of things are we achieving here for the story and then not being afraid to elaborate a little bit like look eventually we're foreshadowing this thing that happens that's why there needs to be a dam here so that moriarty and holmes can pitch off it we're, we're foreshadowing and suddenly for a level artist or a level designer that dam carries a significance because they go oh okay cool i now know why it matters for this space and i think for me trying to target when you go hard on story and when you bring it up to make it more applicable makes it stick better and maybe inspires curiosity rather than, oh, God, he's talking again. And I think that to me is is the key, kind of playing to your audience rather than just gulching. That makes complete mm. sense. Yeah, I think the the playing to the audience thing is, is, is essential. And I, I think if you have a long development period and the story changes several times, I think if you're not on the story team, it's really hard to keep the various iterations straight and to remember like at any given time what exactly is happening on, on the micro level. You might have a good idea of like what's going on overall, but I think it helps if if you're involved in the story decision or in the writing decisions to put on the cap of one of the other teams, like, okay, what is this gonna mean for level design? And so what can I kind of meaning meaningfully communicate to this team or to these two people that I know are working on this level design? Um, I think that's that's quite helpful. So in addition to, I, I was happy to see this question, by the way, because this is like such a, <laughs> like, okay, cool. Yeah, this is such a big part of it is trying to keep people abreast of narrative changes. So um, yeah, I think updating the documentation so that there's always a document that's golden. So at any time people can find what that is and, and check it out. Um, as well as, as you're disseminating the information, really thinking, what does this mean for other teams as much as possible? And then communicating that directly um yeah i have noticed is useful who do you think is the it's the primary job to inform other departments like is it mostly the creative director is it like the lead writer Depends, i think the yeah. information should come from the person who's making the change because they can speak best to why they're making it that's really for me the razor is is who best understands the purpose of a change so they can communicate it clearly and so they're best prepared to answer the inevitable questions that will come in return mm. were you about to say something sarah no i agree with that yeah um uh yeah no i don't think i have anything meaningful to add yeah cosign <laughs> documentation is probably one of the biggest things that like freelance writers probably don't realize like that's what most of your job is going to be as a writer at a studio <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you you write more documents than dialogue. Yes. <laughs> See, interestingly, I don't think that's true for me anyway. I know that that's true in a lot of roles, but I'm happy to say that I think I I think I write more dialogue than documentation. But this has maybe evolved a bit like we have a kind of narrative department now which we didn't used to have, so I might be um living in the present and forgotten anything about the past. <laughs> Yeah, the documents for me and I'm, it's funny that's actually a thing I'm I I was supposed to have done this week but meetings piled up and so there is um there's a section where i'm going through and writing some pretty extensive like implementation notes 
um, what is the purpose of this thing uh, in this particular dialogue file? When would it fire? All those things are communication to the the level design team that will be implementing it, right? They mm-hmm. have, these are living events that happen in a space, so they need to be aware of the when, what, who, where, why, duck, dodge, dip, and dodge. <laughs> uh, so with all of those in mind, you the documents go it could be you know you could generate a full paragraph or two of documentation for a one-liner when you think Mm. about that and i think that's what really for me sometimes just tilts that document level heavy but it's still critical or it's sad or learn to put it in the level yourself but even then failing to document it means qa has a much harder time testing yeah true this is a small tangent but now that we're two plus years into a pandemic what are both of your favorite pieces of software for collaboration Mm. Google Docs. Is it, is it Miro? <laughs> it's Miro it's, for me. It is 100%. Yeah. I haven't used Miro. What is it? It's a virtual whiteboard. Oh. Uh, and so we did it. We did a team offsite. I'll, I'll just go into story mode here for a second. We did a team offsite just a week or two ago. And we had two people. One had a baby on the way and could not afford to not be at home. Fair. Uh, and the other fellow had come down with COVID. And because they were remote and because everyone had come with laptops and to some degree phones or iPads or what have you, uh, with Miro, you can log in with all of those and you're able to very quickly move stickies, write notes on them. So it's very much the whiteboard experience. But unlike a whiteboard, you can scroll back and now there's more whiteboard, but you can also copy and paste things. So there'd be moments where we'd go, hey, it's a blue sky brainstorm. What's the thing you're most excited about for X? And suddenly you'd see this poof, 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 like almost like a, a gray goo exponential <laughs> series of notes all floating out. And uh, there was one hilarious moment where one fellow's name, Louis, was was in there and people were just copying and pasting it. So it just went Louis, 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 like, like we were all most excited about Louis. <laughs> uh, but it, but it, it's very smooth, very easy to operate with. And I, I adore it uh, to no end. Yeah, we used it a lot for outlining on Ratchet, and it was for having never used it before. It was pretty easy to pick up, and like Mike said, it's like the the universe in contact. You just like going on a point, you keep zooming out and out, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. You can do it, fill it up with as much bullshit as you want. And it's great. If Miro is too scary, though, uh, Jamboard's not bad either. It's basically Google's version of it that's a little not as full featured. Yeah, now now that I've heard you guys talk about it, I have used Miro actually, and I think it just hasn't taken off in like massive use for for myself anyway. Um, but yeah, it sounds cool. What was the other program you were saying before, Sarah? Just Google Docs, like a lame ass Google Doc. No, I, I really like it though. It's just very um, easy to use and really easy to track changes, and you can kind of write things in tandem. And um, yeah, I, I, I just like it. Get a lot of use out of it. Are you all using Google Meet, Zoom, or Teams? Google Meets. Teams here. Do you like Teams? I mean, does anyone like <laughs> Teams? It does. It does what it does. Uh, I don't think. I think there's some notes it could learn in terms of surfacing new content having been made available from things like Discord. But it's it's fine. It's functional. It's reasonably fast to follow links. Uh, but you know, its insistence on opening a PowerPoint inside of Teams is is hubris of the highest order. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Max. I guess back on track to storytelling questions. Um, this is more of a general question, but what's one thing you wish game narratives delved into more often? Like it could be themes, mechanics, types of characters, etc. Michael, go with you first. Oof. Um, I, I think that, 
I'm looking more for, and I mean, it's been, it, it feels weird to say this because I think we've been, we've been seeing a bit more of a renaissance, but um, some of the things that are more slice of life and that are going a little broader in terms of context. And I, I say this full aware that there are projects like Lake that have come out and, and um, unpacking and, th- and games like that recently have been just an absolute fascination of mine because they're, they're much lower stakes. They're much, uh, they're, they're not, you know, end of the world, save society. They're not a sad dad trying to reconnect with his child. They're, they're, they're instead sort of a little more wholesome and a little more evocative and emotional pieces. Uh, and I, I really enjoy those experiences. And I think that the thing where they really stand out to me is, well, you know, those two are very mundane. You know, they're very much the quotidian. Like, oh, you're just unpacking someone's college room uh, and that sings. But where I think is really interesting is is when they start to play with that mood of the mundane, but they do it in a somewhat more fantastic setting. So something I've been just enthralled by recently is Citizen Sleeper that just came out. Which Keep is, hearing about it. It's, it's absolutely pitch-perfect like I guess in space cyberpunk where it's very, you know, oh the corporations have messed stuff up and that kind of thing, but it isn't about fighting the power. Instead, it's about survival, right? It casts you in the role of a, a sleeper, which is to say a intelligence. that's like a clone of someone who's presumably in a cryo bed uh, being sent to a colony and they're paying for it by having their intelligence put into this robotic body. And as you land, you, you realize your body's breaking down because it has sort of a built-in obsolescence if you don't get a very specific drug that the only the company makes, you know, so it's how they prevent runaways. It's very Blade Runner in that front. But what you do in the game is find food, find lodging, serve bar. It's not, you're not trying to overthrow the corporation. Instead, you're trying to survive and make friends and the sensation of going around this space station and finding more intricate, connections and points of like empathy it's it's just astonishing and so the mood of those lower stakes stories that aren't always saving the world and i I mean i've only worked in saving the world as a mode um so maybe for me it's just the diversity of not being the content i usually build is uh it's just absolutely uh i don't know peaceful in a way and so I, I enjoy games like that a lot. And I, I, I crave more, so please make them. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, uh, I don't know if commiserate is the right word, but I would co-sign that. I, I love slice of life type games. Like, saving the world is great, but what about if you have to drive across the country to uh, find your long lost love or something like that? Like just smaller stakes, I think can be really special, like a bit um, less broad, but deeper, very interesting. I think I'd be interested to see older characters as well, um, particularly if there's kind of combat involved in a game. I think often we go for the kind of like um, young Adonis type characters, which is awesome. But uh, yeah, I'm interested in kind of later life stories coming up more often. And I wonder if this is going to happen more now that the industry itself is is getting older um, and people working in games as well are are getting older too uh, i'd be interested to see how that's going to change as time goes forward i mean isn't that the reason why we have all the sad dad games now sad dad games yeah i think so yeah <laughs> <laughs> soon it'll be sad grandpa 
Sad divorce games. Oh no, the soundtrack is entirely Cats in the Cradle. (laughs) Man, I've I've been bored by Sad Dad Games Elite, but I would like to play some Sad Grandpa games. That at least would be different. Or Sad Grandma. Yeah, like imagine a game that's just Sad Grandma. I would play it. Isn't that called In the Name of the Wind? Or In the Shape of the Wind? There's, there's, There's one that is essentially an older lady looking after her farm, getting letters from her kids that have left. I can't remember what it's called. The stillness of the wind. That's stillness it. Stillness of the wind. No, I haven't heard it's, of that. It's really neat. It's very evocative and incredibly. I don't. I don't know if it finishes sad because I haven't finished it, but just the the mood and the uh, the the vibe, if you'll excuse the term, that it mm. delivers is incredible. I'm gonna put it in the show notes. Check it out. Yeah, sounds up my alley. And then another more general question: Has your definition of what good writing or narrative design has that changed over time? Yes. Hmm. I feel like I'm, the older I get, the less sure I am about what I know about the definition of good writing, you know? Like, I feel, especially recently, I'm kind of starting to realize that my feedback is not objectively right <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm, you know, we, we peer review each other's work all the time, and I think I would always be quite confident that I was giving good notes. And as time goes on, I just kind of think that I don't necessarily know what good writing is. Like, I don't necessarily know what's going to resonate with somebody just because it doesn't resonate with me or just because I think it's X, Y, Z doesn't mean that that's going to be the experience of the player reading it. And I've been proven uh, wrong enough times where like in Divinity 2, for Divinity Original Sin 2, for example, maybe someone would have put a joke in in the game and I always kind of like didn't like it. And if it were up to me, I would have taken it out, but whatever, it got past me and it went in the game. And then the audience really liked it and really responded well to it. And I was kind of like, well, thank God I got to see that in action because I would have cut it and that would have been um, the wrong decision. So I think over time I'm coming around to the idea that like writing is so subjective that I can't be the arbiter of it. I can only be the arbiter of my own taste. So like, you know, if you're working in a team with collaboration, you're working toward the taste of the creative director or the lead writer or whatever the case may be. And that's a valid thing to do. And within that, there's a, a broad range of subjective uh, definition of what's going to work. So, yeah, just, just to hold it all more loosely, unclenched to use this, <laughs> the phrase from before. Um, but I guess on top of that, like one thing that hasn't changed or one thing that's still maybe like I still respond negatively to personally anyway, is just if I'm sensing like cynicism in writing, like writing that is, uh, if I sense that it's just to kind of close the Jira ticket or to like fill out a lore book or it's just to get the writing done. And I feel like it could have gone in any game anywhere. Um, it just has like a kind of generic ring to it. That'll kind of just like turn me off personally. Um, I really like to see that spark of divinity of the individual, something a little weird or unexpected or just something that makes my brain do a little a little sparkle that's always going to do it for me i think i don't know sorry i don't know what made me think of this when you were talking about objective advice or uh mm. criticism but how many spaces do you put after a period sarah one and okay that's correct <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to say that with like disdain <laughs> dripping from my no, face no that's no, the right, right that's the right reaction to say that question hey sarah that piece of feedback was objectively correct <laughs> <laughs> well there's one in the can anyway <laughs> what about you mike are you one space or two I am a one spacer. Who's a two spacer? Man, Arfman and Insomniac Games. <laughs> oh, jeez. Also, the Oxford comma is very important to me. Yes. Very yes. important. Agreed. Yes. I'm glad we put the right people on this show. 
Yeah, I'll say, you know, I said a lot about the subjectivity of good writing, which is true, but there are rules about commas and semicolons, and you have to know them if you want to break them. That's all I ask. Hang on. This this was a fight when I brought this up to Insomniac. How do you spell woe? W-H-O-A, and that's how it's spelled. I'm a W-O-A-H. You know what? I think this is a British and Commonwealth thing. Could be. Because my Irish colleagues also spell it that way. Well, not, they're not British at all. They're not the Commonwealth at all, but historically. I'm with Sarah, though. Yeah. I think Sarah's right. I used to be Mike, but then I became Sarah. Oh, no. <laughs> Did you used to be British? Yes. I wish. <laughs> I was the British twin. Nick was the American twin. It was like Karen. <laughs> okay, but Mike, wait, what was, what was the original question I got? Thank you, because I've also got the original question. <laughs> the so. definition of good writing. And oh, yeah. Good uh, uses Oxford comma, obviously, is part yeah. of it. Um, but so I think the – yeah, good writing is uh, – I think everything Sarah said is correct. But I think, I think the thing I would add is that um, it's tonally accurate for the larger piece. That's mm. probably a thing I look for. Uh, I think – a lot of the time there's writing teams it's rare i think in games you have a single voice contributing uh, and i think games are stronger when there are multiple voices because they're they tend to be longer than a, a one or two hour like a movie um and so having the multiplicity of perspective and multiple voices contributing leads to i think a fresher experience for players which is great but i think there has to be some clear direction uh, and clear sort of agreement and alignment among the writing team around the tone of the piece. And that while there can be, you know, funny moments, a funny moment in a comedy is very different from a funny moment in a tragedy, right? Because the, the, the tragic comedy is there as a catharsis. It's there um, to reinforce maybe the absurdity of the tragedy that's happening, like the, you know, alas, poor Yorick speech, but recognizing that the characters and the content that's being produced should fit within a larger, I guess, sensation of, of not just the overall, like here's the whole game's narrative narrative, but also here is what, kind of tone and timber the current act is in uh recognizing when something is going to clunk uh and going i think it's time to break these rules as sarah just said i think is really important uh if i were to critique for instance a particular moment where i think uh we should have made a better call uh we had dragon age 2 had the three different tones where you could be sort of you know noble or jokey or more yeah i will fight you uh as we called them at the time superman spider-man or batman um sticking with the spider-man tone the more jokey frivolous uh sidestepping while holding your dying mother uh over the course of da2 was absolutely not the right call and i think something we should have just pulled so that was a place where it clunked because it wasn't fitting and while it fit the overall arc of the game, it absolutely didn't fit the the moment that was being presented. And I think knowing when to break those rules and knowing when to do so because the moment demands it uh, can artistically be much stronger than uh, just being like sort of slavishly stuck to a particular tone or, well, this character's always funny, so I guess this character's funny here. Um, and I think that there's, there's a, a sort of nameless grace to understanding 
when and how to apply the, 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 the stuff or how to sort of mollify the tone that your character is maintaining to better fit the overall um, mood of, of this particular moment of the, the dramatic arc. And I think that for me is a, is a really subtle thing that in particular because of the complexity of I've written it, but I haven't seen it in context. The complexity of this is passed through three or four different hands and then to the actors and then comes back as a performance. Like there is so much process happening around even a single line of dialogue that there's a lot of chance of slippage, which is why it's so key that there be kind of sort of a, a strong kind of vision and a shared sort of alignment on the overall structure and feel of each particular moment. And so long as you can, you can maintain that trust and communication, then the writing itself will be good regardless almost of the content. So I think it's, I, 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 to some degree think good writing is a team effort, despite it being a very individual piece of contribution. Mm. Absolutely. Seems like trust is becoming the theme of this episode just in general. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nameless grace is a really good NPC name, by the way. <laughs> well, it's a, it's, uh, I'm sorry. Can I, I've told this story a bunch, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll quickly do it. Um, it's from my favorite, favorite, favorite thing by uh, Alexander Pope. He did an essay on criticism. And in it, the whole thing is done in rhyming couplets until he talks about how you need to know the forms and the rules so that you know when to break the rules. Mm. And at that point, he does a rhyming triplet. And he calls that the nameless graces. And that has always stuck with me. He knew exactly when to break the rules, which is when he was saying you need to know when to break the rules. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. So I'll link that in the show notes too. And I agree with Sarah that nameless grace is a great NPC name. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost the, uh, the lady who ran the, uh, the, the brothel in uh, Planescape, wasn't it? Fall from grace. Was that her name? Oh, that's great. Oh man. This is a, uh, I guess slightly related. Are there any common mistakes that you see young writers making these days? Or are they all perfect? <laughs> I think um, I, I won't attribute this just to young writers. I think it's just like something that is a common mistake that I've noticed and, and noticed in myself as well is uh, kind of defaulting to a first idea or a trope. Like the first thing that you think of when you're writing a particular character is almost never the best one that you could think of or the most unique one. Like, the, the most kind of easy example of this is if you've got like a dwarf trader and your character walks up to the dwarf trader and the dwarf trader says like, hail, well met adventure. Like, would you like to have a look at my wares? They're fine from all across the realm. You know, that was, that's, if you, if you send out a writing test with that prompt to a hundred writers, 80% of them will give you that. So I'm interested in what's after that. And then what's the idea after that? Again, how can it be twisted into something more unique and memorable? I agree with Sarah. Where I often get in situations where I feel like I need to exhaust myself of my go-to, mm. I guess, writer instincts, and then that's when the real interesting stuff will come out. Yeah, exactly. These are fine dwarven crafts directs from Orzammar. I don't, I don't understand how you could possibly. <laughs> I have one, which is, uh, and I think, I think it's a a result of especially, and and I have I haven't worked with too many young writers recently, which is you know almost a shame, but you know we'll get there. Uh, small company and all. But uh, it's almost an urge, I think, I even have to repress on myself, is to not fall into Whedon-style quippiness. Mm. Uh, not everything needs to be a biting one-liner and stuff. And, of course, we've had, you know, multiple decades of your Buffies, your Fireflies, influencing what is obviously now the, the Marvel norm. And I think that, that it's, a, it's a good instinct to resist. 
um, being earnest, being having an actual reaction to things instead of just sort of a a jokey throw off one liner or a zinger uh, is something that that uh, to me it it's fine in and of itself, but right now it's so expected mm. that it feels inherently cliche because it's been overused. I don't think it's wrong inherently, but I think that that right now it's so de rigueur that that it isn't that I think earnestness and and being you know, being, well, to go back to Sarah's point on vulnerability, letting your characters be a little vulnerable can actually be a much, much stronger way to, to build them up and, and make your writing voice sound distinct. Yeah, I agree. I think that quippiness is something I would categorize as like um, arm's length writing. You know, it's kind of like mm. out there. It's a uh, smirk emoji. And there, there's certainly a time and a place for that. And it can be very entertaining, but it, it doesn't have to be all the time. If we're in like the the weenism, quippy phase right now, what was the phase before this? Was it just like the grim dark cynicism? Just something else I'm not thinking of. Before the Whedons? Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. Hmm. Grim dark cynicism comes to mind. So does kind of like exposition heavy loreism, I guess. Yeah, the world building heavy. Dumping yeah. Everything out of everyone. Look, Jade Empire was my first game, and I'm. <laughs> I've apologized several times. For, <laughs> no, I, I replayed the opening and I was like, oh, oh, young Mike, what were you doing? What were you doing, sir? It's of its time. Yes, it very much was of its time. Exactly. A more positive question. Do you have a favorite game writing or design experience or challenge or both? A favorite, sorry, experience that I've had? Yeah, favorite like writing or game design experience on a project. Uh, uh, I think I think there are there are two moments for me that stand out as as the favorite moment. Um, uh, Running Jade Empire. <laughs> well, I mean, it certainly it certainly had ups and downs, right? There were there were moments, and it you know the blind terror of your first job is uh, it certainly sears a lot into your uh, into your psyche. But um, so I think the first time you see it in the wild and see fans reacting to it. Uh, is for me just it's 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 a culmination of x probably years of work and um when people dig it and it resonates it it can it can sort of make it all feel worthwhile um i know for me like just a personal memory there was a moment where we rolled out the the trespasser dlc to the main stage at pax and just the um the, the volume, the actual like physical impact of people screaming, like a like a speaker subwoofer going off almost when Solus appeared on screen and just ah! and and it was it was uh, whoa okay that that was worth it that uh, that trailer did a great job the marketing team cut it perfectly but but just knowing that people I guess gave a shit about that character to such a degree that um, they emitted several several pascals of force was was pretty amazing um, the other one though uh is uh and i think uh, i think often writing gets to do this more than others uh is the moment when you have been wrestling with that thorny problem that thing that doesn't make sense in the game and everyone's kind of not they've almost kind of instinctively started walking around the elephant because it's not apparently not leaving the room but at some point we're going to have to solve it and uh someone doesn't matter who because I enjoy it no matter where it comes from, pitches a possible solution and you see a room of, 
you know, 10, probably very veteran and probably very tired people go there, that's it. That's the one. And you have this pitch. And sometimes it's just as simple as like, it would make sense if we did this with the lore, I can write three lines and it'll work. And people go done. We fixed it. Those moments are, um, they, they carry an exultation for me where, where it's like, finally, because there's that joy of teamwork, the joy of discovery, the joy of um, uh, breaking through the long-standing problem. All of those things feel like, you know, I, I would never equate it to, to military, but just, just the achievement of objective, you know, like, what's, what's it like to um, pull off that thing you were trying to do? And to me, those are, those are, those are the moments that shine when, when it connects with people or it connects with the team. Mm, yeah bravo um i think yeah i think this is on a similar theme maybe so i think the most kind of gratifying writing experiences are when we get to do cross-department collaboration so that's something that's just so special about games is the amount of creative and technical ability that gets to be applied to something you're working on together is just completely explosive and wonderful. So in Original Sin 2, I wrote this character called Losa, who was a singer, but she couldn't actually sing because she had this demon inside of her that was preventing her from doing it. So, uh, you know, spoiler alert, at the end of the game, she does kind of defeat the demon and she gets her lute and she gets to sing the song. So it was, I really loved writing the scene and the scene itself was very special for me to write. Um, and there was a, a song that our composer, uh, Bobby Slavov, had written. And in the scene, she takes the lute and starts singing the song. And she's singing, singing her heart out, and it's great. And I thought that was going to just be the scene in my mind. I hadn't like asked for support from any other departments. And then someone from VFX messaged me and was like, oh, I'm working on like the Losa finale. Like, here's what I have. What do you think? And it was this incredible... like. VFX spectacle with these kind of like gold lights flashing all around her and then at the end like there's butterflies and there's flowers and it like crescendos until she's at the end of the song and I just remember sitting at my desk and watching it and just like crying because it was so beautiful and like it just felt like such a kind of precious thing that these super talented colleagues were able to realize this moment that meant so much to me personally in such a beautiful way yeah, it's very, very special stuff. And then, as Mike was saying, when that goes out into the world and people have a, have a response to it and it resonates with them as well, like, that is, that is it. <laughs> like, that is bliss to me. Uh, very, very special stuff. Let's veer in the other direction and go, do either of you have a writer or director nightmare? <laughs> I, I want to say it hasn't happened to me yet, but it's because I was on a mocap stage and I realized... If someone came up to me then and asked me to come up with a joke or something funny on the spot for a character say, I would I would die. <laughs> I wouldn't be happy. So do I think of anything similar? I think writing uh, this the scenario you came up with definitely sent shivers down my spine. So I would definitely hate to do that. Um, one thing that came up for me as I was kind of pondering this question was something that actually happened, which was uh, during one of our previous releases, I was... I had like this, this specific thing to do for the voice recording pipeline, which was to mark this like certain button on a dialogue to say that it's ready for record and can be recorded. And it was kind of when, during a really kind of busy, hot time in production. And I just had it completely went out of my head that I was needing to do this. And so the voice recording studio like wasn't being fed. 
and it was it was just down to me pressing this button and I kind of like realized it or someone realized it and it like just my stomach completely sank and I realized that I had like caused this huge like fault in the pop pipeline for a really long time I think it was like yeah probably an expensive mistake as well but uh my boss was very kind and forgiving and so it's okay but it's one of those things where I'll sit bolt upright at 3 a.m. and be like, did I press the button? Oh, no, it's not 2015 anymore. I'm okay, you know. I would die during that, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And recognizing there's, like, one script that didn't get out, right? Yeah. So they're there. Mine, mine is actually similarly along in a pipeline phase is the fear of somehow because I, I i don't know if everyone does this but i've always worked in a system where we'll use a text-to-speech system to generate audio for the game before uh we before we go to recording do you do that yes okay i love it it's fantastic and uh for anyone who hasn't worked in that system that the hearing the line read back uh well sometimes painful depending on the quality of your text-to-speech <laughs> Um, if you can get that to okay or even good, then you know it's going to be amazing when an actor does it. But it also gives you a sense of timing and pacing. And, oh, this is too talky. So I love all of that. But for me, um, recognizing that those are never, ever, or at least never in my experience, the kind of license where that is prepared to be shipped in a, in a product, the thought of that slipping through. Right. Mm. And, and suddenly a character's like, hello, I am <laughs> here to talk about your space adventure uh, is just horrifying. Uh, we've never had it yet. And we're, you know, there's a lot of safeties in place because everybody's equally scared of it. Yeah. Does your system not like did you just check to see if, oh, there's a line in here that's still robo voice or something like. Oh, yes. Yes. But. But what if it fails? I know. Mm. I know. What if Sarah didn't push the button? What if Sarah didn't push the button? Oh. Those are two different problems, but it's the same. Like, it seems unlikely you wouldn't flag the dialogue you just wrote as needing yes. to be retranslated. But it happens, and that's what I'm always, always scared of. But for the most part, uh, yeah, you, you put enough safeties in place. You think about the worst-case scenario. You mentally do the math of if you got sued for $10 per copy of game you sold, how much that line of dialogue would cost. And <laughs> Then you get cold sweats for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> I do have a nightmare. I, this hasn't happened yet, I don't think. But getting into a VO booth and uh, they record, I forgot to like replace some of my placeholder dialogue. So it's like, we're literally, I'll write something like blah, 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 and I'll put in some blahs in there. <laughs> or I'm going to kill you. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> something, something, dark <laughs> side. <laughs> and then I think. The weird inverse of that for me is that if I have to do, I don't, I'm a morning person. So I like doing my writing during the day. I don't like writing late at night, but if I have to write late at night, I'll, my dial, my writing will get pretty salty or it can. <laughs> and I have had it in some cases, uh, where I forget what I wrote and I get to the booth and then <laughs> these lines come up that still work. They work <laughs> in the game. I want to stress that they were very good, but I would not, they were in a tone that was, <laughs> A little angrier than I would have been normally. <laughs> Not intended. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Midnight tone. My my favorite piece of temp dialogue I ever encountered was written by Luke Chris Jensen, who was basically writer one at Bioware, and he was quickly, quickly slamming together a quest for Jade Empire. Here we go again. That was like, ah, here, it's just, it's done. Can you write the actual dialogue? And I'd never seen his temp dialogue before, but we got to the point where old mother Quan, who... 
who had inherited the cinnabar mine from her husband who went insane because it's mercury um you finally solved the quest for her and the temp dialogue line said this is amazing sonny thank you i can now hire some hot young men to really work it (laughs) (laughs) and i that stuck with me for well almost two decades at this point that's like a gift for the dev team to me like they get to have a chuckle when they play the game internally for a while yep yep or the or the qa who insists on the most atrocious character generation possible yeah (sighs) Now, here's a question, actually. Have you ever had it happen that uh, a localization team or QA flagged your text as, surely this is a bug, when actually <laughs> it's what you intended? They, I've had it where, like, they haven't played it as a bug, but they're going like, did you mean this? Yeah. And it's like, no. I know what I said. I yeah. Mean, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They have a lot of ratchet just because uh No, there was a gun that was that was there was some insane gun you came up with that was like a screaming gun or something. Oh. There was a gun called like a, a whoopinator. And then nice. they wanted to they had some like, oh, does it mean this? Like this? And a very like serious, uh, kind answer. And then I my response was, No, it's a gun that screams. And that was <laughs> I said to them. And I love I love the localization team. Um I was gonna say like Another one of my more realistic nightmares is that we send things off to Loke and then I have to go back and change something and I have to make them work harder or like mm. go back mm. and change something, which I never want to do ever, 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 ever. Mm. Yeah. But Mike, did you have to, did you get localization notes like that? Uh, I think, I think my favorite uh, of all time was the, um, uh, there was a place in origins called the Frostback mountains and a note came back from sort of the Loke geops testing group that, uh, apparently, frostback was a derogatory term used to describe Canadians who wintered in Florida. <laughs> and I went, well, speaking as a Canadian, I think I'm comfortable with that one shipping. And also, Canadians winter in Florida are not what I would call central to our core demographic. <laughs> so I suspect peop- the, the Venn diagram of people who will, will encounter that and have ever heard that will be very small. I wonder how they spotted it. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe this will be interesting, but out of curiosity, are there any talks or books or resources that you go back to a lot when you're working on a game now or working on a game story? I, I've, got, I've got one I love. And I think in, in part it's because I've read too many management books that are like, do you know why Apple computers has such success? It's because they started with why. And the book, of course, is called Start With Why. Mm-hmm. And you get about nine chapters of just that without really digging in. But there's one here by, um, actually, keep it on my desk, called uh, Understanding Show, Don't Tell, and Really Getting It by Janice Hardy. And never has a book dove with such wild abandon so rapidly into the meat. And been like, let's talk about show, don't tell. And it, it just, there is no preamble. We're going in cold, baby. And the the... The, the work is really good in terms of the way she breaks down a number of very clear examples and will actually work them from this is too much tell and works her way down to variations that are much more show and then talks about establishing a consistent amount of show versus tell in your work and registering that the the type of work you're doing and the quality and sort of the, the genre conventions affect what show don't tell balances should be like it's a very it's a very direct 
thing on writing. And I, I've, I've always found as something that, you know, making dialogue have less words is overall the savings, but also we're such a visual medium. It's a really powerful and, and very sort of scripty kind of thing. Uh, but I mean, a lot of it still applies to novel work as well, but she, she dives right into like, let's do like, here's the same thing presented six different ways and talk about how and why the choices that are being made are being made. And it's, it's wonderful for both those things. Never heard of it. I love it. No, I love the title. Yeah, yeah, it it has that same level of directness that the book kind of carries from start to finish. What about you, Sarah? Um, I think the thing that I kind of come back to the most is actually just like this YouTube clip that is like the last 10 minutes or something of Transistor, the super giant game. And I've watched it so many times now. And I think I always kind of pull it up when I'm, I just feel like the well is a bit dry or something if I'm just in a snit or I'm in a mood like and I have to write something and I want to write something like that's good and kind of juicy um and I need to like get 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 it all moving I guess I'll just watch the ending of Transistor I just think it's so beautifully done um I remember playing it and just having such an emotional experience but also when I watch it back I just feel like it's a complete masterpiece of how a game can feel and the kind of you can see the collaboration of the departments in that game with the the way that the music is and the beautiful art and um, the final combat and just kind of experiencing that again kind of ceaselessly and very consistently lifts me up to a place where I'm back in my mojo and I can move forward creatively. So yeah, bit of a strange one, but transistor. Good game. I have an I have an equivalent. Yeah, I go to the the last hour of the Shadowbringers expansion for Final Fantasy XIV. Mm. And if you'd asked me, especially at launch, but if you'd asked me at any point, if I expected, I would say one of my favorite pieces of game storytelling is an expansion pack for a MMO. I would have told you that that sounded like crazy talk and I'd clearly been taken over by aliens, but Shadowbringers <laughs> is a tour de force. Mm-hmm. And its last hour is legitimately fantastic. Why is it so good? Shadowbringers um, plays with uh, revelation around kind of a, a lot of what's really been going on. So it, it's essentially it's Endwalker is the real combination, but it's 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 the beginning of the end of understanding this this you know uh, what decade long story arc that they've been telling. But what it really manages to nail uh, is that it does the highly present villain who it remains a villain, but gives you an incredibly deep sense of empathy for the choices that he made that led him to his villainy that he still does not repent about. He would not make a different choice later, but he comes to an understanding of your heroism at the same time as you, the player, come to an understanding of his villainy. And there's this mutual grudging respect coupled with I would say two major themes that are run throughout the entire, say, uh, 20 hour run of the expansion pack story coming to grips around friendship, acceptance and duty. And all of them come together in a single, absolutely fucking perfect moment uh, with just this pitch perfect cinematic presentation the music is amazing because Sokin is a genius and it is sincerely one of my favorite pieces of media ever created mm. feels like now i should start asking people is this the best final fantasy it's 14 <laughs> i i would have said 10 i think 10 does some amazing work but i think 14 has eclipsed it 
Um, because again, I tend to resonate with their stories more than their combat and stuff. And I think 14 does a lot of very brilliant mechanical stuff as well. But, uh, but yeah, uh, those two would be my candidates, but I think 14 has eclipsed 10 for me, which I did not expect to have happen. And I know I'm a bit of a wild card saying 10 for a lot of people. It's, you know, six or, or what have you. Don't even say seven. <laughs> Get that number out of here. Get out. <laughs> Each episode, we have our guests ask a question to our next episode's guests. And in our last one, we had Corey Brotherson and Kelsey Moon. Kelsey asked, is there anything you would have changed or added to your favorite game narratives if you were on the writing staff? Mike, would you, how would you change Final Fantasy XIV? Oh, no, no, no. That's not my favorite game narrative. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's favorite Final Fantasy. Okay. And I actually don't know what I would do to change Final Fantasy XIV. It's, okay, well, I would rework the opening because it's very drab. But more importantly, my favorite game narrative is... The, um, I think in large part because of its time, Star Control 2. Because we're going back to the early 90s here. And that game had a remarkable amount of player agency and freedom. And let you boot around a a recently conquered, almost post-apocalyptic galaxy. uh, Trying to pull together some degree of resistance in order to offset an an impending disaster. Uh, And, you know, I think it it very much is coming from a, like, 2020s perspective. Um... The only part of that game, everything else is still reasonably pitch perfect, but it it, it does not handle the Sirene, who were the, uh, they'd be the, the sorry, actually, they literally were blue women. Um, it does not handle their race well. It handles them uh, in very much like sci-fi sex pot kind of approach, which, you know, again... It was of its time 30 years ago, but I think, you know, a, a remake of that game, that would be the thing to, to work on because the, the, the main sort of figurehead character, Talana, I think Talana, if I remember her name right, was, was actually pretty good and stuff, but it, there wasn't the depth there that would have been needed if you're going to do an all-female race, that kind of stuff. Um, there was it was too much eye candy, too much like you know, girl on the cover of a Boris Vallejo kind of you know like like it just it was like ah uh, you're there because Buck Rogers essentially, um, so it's it's the one part of the game where I'm like oof that did not age well, which is too bad because the rest of the game is absolutely spectacular. Awesome. What about you, Sarah? I have such a cop out answer for this, which is uh, I wouldn't change anything about my favorite games, <laughs> but um. <laughs> No, like when I think about like which, which game stories did I really enjoy the most, the Transistor obviously stands out and so does The Witcher 3. And I just, I, like, I I feel like if any anything that I could suggest to change to them would have changed the game in kind of an essential way that might have detracted from some other part of it. So I just see them, I guess, as this, you know, product of the constellation of people that worked on it and the process of making it and the things they decided to do and to not to do. And I'm just happy with them to be as they are. Um, yeah. Cop, cop out. Hey, hey. Still a good answer. <laughs> um, and Corey asked, what are some of your most effective or powerful narrative based techniques you like to see being used in games to immerse the audience? Yeah. Um, I really like simplicity, I think in, in the presentation of games narrative. So I really like it when a game trusts the audience's intelligence and doesn't need to spell everything out and leaves kind of gaps in between what's told for inference and maybe the information is out there, but it's not kind of um, being force-fed to you. So I think uh, Supergiant does this very well. I think um, Kit Fox as well does this really well. There's a game called Moon Hunters, I think came out in 2014, that has a really strong sense of world 
and is a very interesting place to hang out. But a lot, like none of the lore is really fed to you. You're kind of left to trust your intelligence and your instincts of what you're understanding and put together what's going on. And you're given enough to understand what your objectives are. But you feel, or I felt like an active kind of participant in the game because it wasn't all laid out for me done. Um, so yeah, I really like that kind of simplicity and an implied collaboration with the player. Sweet. What about you, Mike? Well, it's interesting just to how, how how much of that maps directly even to the the FromSoft world building, right? The yeah. your Bloodborns and stuff. The immersion, I think, in a way is because your brain is collecting this information. But there's also this pep, uh, parallel sense that the character you are doesn't know this world any more than you, the player, mm. do, which is always very powerful. Uh-huh. Um, I think for me, one of my favorite things is when the game takes a moment, especially in games with dialogue choices, to pause and give the player a chance to say how they think the character feels right now rather than all dialogue being purposeful or i have questions but instead going hey are are you okay is everything all right how are you holding up with this whatever maybe catastrophe that's happening or personal tragedy or whatever and and moments uh, where there can be sort of those uh, connections between characters that engage the the main player's avatar and pulls and allows you to sort of say, "Hey, how am I feeling?" Because I think it I think it similarly creates a sense of introspection and engagement where you might sit back for a second, and going, "Wow, how do I feel about this?" As someone involved in this game, so I think it's an interesting blend of um, uh, immersion insofar as the people asking those questions are realistic and that that makes sense but also creating that empathy and synchronicity between the player and avatar to say like hey this is a chance for you to sort of input and i think it's even better when there's a payoff to it right you know people remembering how you responded and that kind of thing can be very very powerful i think a lot of uh a lot of the real success for me of the telltale games is when they would have those moments where people would turn to you know, uh, Clementine, if you're in number two or Lee or, you know, character after character and sort of like there'd be those little personal beats that weren't as purposeful to the game or how do we defeat the zombies, but instead more about how are we feeling about what's happening or just happened. And I love those moments. Just yeah. giving players the time to breathe. Yep. I really like writing those moments. And sometimes I'm, I've been accused of overdoing it in the past. Like every, every character is like, oh, Lee have a little therapy now or what do you, yeah. <laughs> I think the, the, um, the mute, like, uh, sorry, the life is strange games and stuff doing the little musical interludes where like Max just picks up her guitar and mm. stuff too. Or, they live in that same space for me because it's, it's going to play as long as I feel she should play. Yeah. Right. I want more of these moments in games. I don't care if they come overused, just put more of them in. <laughs> um, What's a storytelling related question both you would like our next guests to answer? I've got one, but if you want to go first, Sarah, go for it. Sure. Um, my question is for the next guest, what's your experience of creative authenticity within a commercial medium? Oh, wow. that's interesting. <laughs> that's a whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, um, I, I'd go, who is your favorite secondary character? And oh, why? So who's your your Alec Baldwin from Glengarry Glen Ross? They show up and they leave a they leave a massive impact on the game despite only getting ten minutes on the screen. Who are who are those characters? 
based on previous episodes, Garrus would be up there. See, I'd put him as a main because he's on he's three games, he's there, but for me, I'm thinking like like the really, really memorable merchant. The shopkeeper oh, from yeah, the shopkeeper Pyre. from from Pyre. The shopkeeper from Pyre is the best one. There you go. Yeah, or the what are you buying yeah. from Resident Evil Four? <laughs> yeah. Right. For me, he lives in there. Or that, or the guy who in Dragon's Dogma, when literally the entire city, including ten feet in front of his stall, collapses, gives you one line to go. Well, these are tough times. <laughs> Their master works all. You can't go wrong. Like he's right back on the patter, and I'm like, God, God bless you, sir. Well done. <laughs> The, uh, just maybe think of that when you just the dialogue, but I don't know if that shifted the game, but Nick had written a line for the NPC in Ratchet where at the beginning of the game, there's like a huge, there's, you're in a city of this huge, like alien stuff starts happening, going everything, everything goes crazy. There's one NPC who just says, wow, life in the big city. <laughs> See, if it were me, it'd be, I think my favorite in all media would be the, the My Cabbages guy from the Avatar series. <laughs> my Cabbages! <laughs> <laughs> god i wish yeah. i could that's the greatest joy to write those characters yeah yes and that's a good note to end on i think that's the end of the podcast i forgot how we end this so max how do we end this uh where can people find both of you on the internet and plug whatever you want right now sure well i'm i'm mike underscore Laidlaw uh on virtually well, most things. I'm not on Instagram, but on Twitter and stuff and happy to chat with people there. Um, I'm at Yellow Brick Games and we're at yellowbrickgames.ca. Uh, we do have several, several job postings up right now. Uh, unfortunately, writing has been filled, but there are others. So if anyone's looking for work or wants to reach out to their contacts, that would be amazing. Sweet. What about you, Sarah? Uh, I am not contactable online, really. Good. Yeah. I want to keep it that way, but Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, you win. Do yeah, not perceive I, Sarah. Do not perceive <laughs> me. I have an inactive Twitter that you can message me if you want, and I'll get it uh, when I get it. But um, Larian has uh, Baldur's Gate three out on early access, and uh, yeah, you can find it on Steam. And we also, if you search for like jobs, Larian Studios, we also have a lot of positions available um, in several studios all over the world, so you can have a look at that as well. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at ScriptLockCast. Our music was done by Isabella Ness, and our logo was done by Lily Nishida. And that's it, right, Max? Yes. Awesome. Thank you both for coming on. This is so fun. Thank you so much, guys. This was lots of fun. (laughs) 